And at 3 o'clock, we welcome you into Cover to Cover, today's Stone's Throw with Jennifer Stone. Please do stay tuned here on KPFA. Happy ending, nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the shadows out of sight. This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Today is uh, March the 18th, and spring is coming. It's coming, I think, two days, a day and a half, two days. And we will have the spring equinox. Yep. Whole damn thing is going to start all over again. Of course, March is Easter, and it is the, uh, uh, what is it, uh, International Woman's Month. We get a month again, yes, once again. <laughs> I I gave up on politics this week. I tried to make some notes, but... You get the feeling that you're watching a movie by Spike Lee. Um, I looked at the cover of the New Yorker, the current New Yorker. It's got uh, Senator Clinton and uh, Senator Obama both in bed, both reaching for that red telephone, you know. Which one can grab it first? (laughs) Jungle Fever by Spike Lee, right? Never mind. Uh, Perhaps there is something behind all this. Perhaps it will help us to sort out some of the issues. Never mind. I just can't imagine having to put up with it until next November. Uh, I looked at the television. There's not much on the television, but uh, as an old recovering high school teacher, an English teacher... I had to look at the series on John Adams. Uh, I expected Deja Vu all over again. It's a little better than that, not much. Um, If you care about these things, especially if you have students who might watch this, this series about our forefathers and foremothers, you can check out... uh, the New Yorker for March 17th. Yes, comes out on St. Patrick's Day. Uh, television section. The Divider. Yes, John Adams, The Divider. <laughs> it's a miniseries, seven hours. And it's not bad. It, it, it gives us a kind of raunchy American revolution. I thought it was nice and grubby. Um, I didn't have all the, the usual nonsense and... You know, it shows you John Adams um, uh, in court protecting or uh, defending uh, 
uh, Englishman, yes, English soldiers, yes, quite a Tory he was to begin with. Uh, now, that's the same issue with um, the blonde and Barack on the cover, right, uh, reaching for the red telephone. Anyway, uh, it's the 17th March, the, the issue for St. Patrick's Day. I let St. Patrick's Day go mm, this year. I'm sitting here stuffing myself with the the uh, shamrock cookies from the hall. Oh, that's all I need, yes. Uh, all that Celtic music takes me back to my childhood. nauseating. Anyway, um, HBO series John Adams. I don't, I don't, they tell us not to recommend things here. Uh, I, I don't know whether we, we recommend them. I don't recommend anything. I, I just try to spot the trends, you know, and I did take note that this series, this seven hours about um, the American Revolution, has certain parallels. You know, it's uh, all about a time when uh, the 13 original states had more loyalty to um, each one, to his own state, Uh Everybody, you know, was a Virginian first, and that United States business, that that was an afterthought, uh, kind of like Iraq today. Oh, I don't know. Uh, it's difficult. Um, John Adams was not the most charming character. Uh, actually, I think he had a better sense of humor than Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson was a... Uh, well, he's he's in the show, too, but um, so far we see that he's just a, a man who is afraid to be a public speaker. He and John Adams um, ran for president in 1800, and uh, Jefferson was characterized as an atheist um, and, of course, um, a man who kept a concubine, uh, Sally Hemmings, yes. So I don't know how they would do today. Um, anyway... John Adams begins with the Boston Massacre that took place uh, in March 1770. You know, eight British grenade, uh, grenadiers fire into a crowd of Bostonians, you know, they're rioting on King Street. And John Adams, in a kind of a day, stumbles over the bodies of the dead and the wounded, and then he trudges home through the blood-stained snow, speechless at the agony of what he has witnessed. I have no words for it, Abigail, he whispers to his wife. Now, Laurel Linney is a terrific Abigail Adams. Now, I think for an 18th century woman, I guess she gets the prize as the American feminist. Um, very interesting to compare Abigail Adams and Sally Hemmings. Two women of their time. Abigail is wise and fierce and long-suffering. She is her husband's anchor. She is the break on his pride, his most astute advisor. Yes. Now, when Adams agrees to defend these British soldiers uh, in court, they're charged with murder, uh, he is defying his fellow sons of liberty including his rabble-rousing cousin Samuel Adams, who wants nothing more than for these redcoats to hang. Uh, the night before he is to deliver his summary to the jury, John Adams, in his nightshirt, 
paces the floor of his bedchamber. Abigail is tucked beneath the covers, reading a draft of his statement. Impatient for her critique, he opens and closes the bed curtains. <laughs> it's a scene that is a nice play on the 18th century phrase, curtain lecture. Uh, yes, that's yes, what's meant by pillow talk. Abigail observes, vanity, vanity, you have overburdened your argument with ostentatious erudition. <laughs> Actually, it looks like Abigail is responsible for most of John Adams' sensible behavior and choices. Uh, let's see. Um, hmm. This is from a book by David McCollum. And uh, as I said, it, it is a, it's a production coming to us from Tom Hanks. Um, and it is, uh, it is conventional. Um, but at least it gives the 18th century uh, a slightly different spin. It's not that that um, uh, that lesson you had in the seventh grade, you know, on uh, our forefathers. Uh, the show takes uh, John Adams to Philadelphia, where he serves as a Massachusetts delegate to the First Continental Congress in the wake of Parliament's passage of the Coercive Acts. That's the one which includes the measure closing Boston Harbor to trade. John Adams is tireless, but he is unable to persuade the delegates from the other colonies to support a struggle that so far looks to be Boston's fight. He goes home defeated. Uh, now we're up to 1775. Uh the shots are fired in Lexington and Concord. Adams races to the scene from his farm south of Boston, rides through the bloody fields, once again picking a path over the dead and the wounded. He tells Abigail, there's no mistaking Britain's intentions now. He argues for declaring independence. <laughs> anyway, uh, this this bit, you know, um, we've seen the famous paintings of the signing of the Declaration of Independence and all that stuff. Uh, that's pretty much the scene here. Uh, actually, this miniseries uh, does give you the impression that uh, John Adams was in charge of uh, the Declaration of Independence. Um I suppose you can make that argument. I like Thomas Paine. Uh, he's the guy who convinced the American people to support independence. And, of course, Thomas Jefferson wrote the thing. Um, Thomas Jefferson, I have read here and there, was a terrible public speaker. Uh, somewhat uh, somewhat reserved, you know, uh, southern aristocrat. Uh, unlike... Uh, John Adams, he did not like the spotlight. Um, anyway, uh, the guy who plays Adams, uh, his name is uh, Giamatti, uh, is an odd actor. He does an amazing job here. Giamatti, G-I-A-M-A-T-T-I. -T -T you remember him. He's the kind of guy who usually plays uh, things like the lead in... Um, uh, American Splendor. Uh, anyway, uh, he drafts 
the Declaration of Independence, uh, but he gives it then to um, uh, to uh, Jefferson to rewrite. And, of course, Adams regretted this because uh, Jefferson ran away with all the stage effect, he complained, and all the glory. Hmm. I'm not sure. Um, I I like the, the portrayal of the tenderness, the uh, understanding uh, in John and Abigail's marriage, 50 years of uh, a loving marriage. Uh, let's just go ahead and say maybe it, it, maybe it was true. Uh, maybe they did uh, love and support one another. I can't wait for the, the, uh, the scenes in London... Uh, John and Abigail are in London. He's an ambassador at that point. And uh, Jefferson's daughter, one of Jefferson's daughters, arrives in the care of a 15-year-old girl called Sally Hemmings. And Abigail won't have the girl in the house because she's a slave. She disapproves. I want to see how they handle that. <laughs> Abigail, in letters, Abigail wrote that um, Sally Hemmings was much more difficult and hard to handle as an adolescent than uh, than uh, Polly Jefferson's daughter. Anyway, uh, as you know, Sally Hemings was uh, the half-sister of uh, Thomas Jefferson's wife, who had died a few years before. Uh, that's another story, a wonderful story, and television hasn't, hasn't finished with that one yet. They keep trying... Um, if you're interested in that one, try Jefferson in Paris. That's still my favorite. Um, Nick Nolte as Tom Jefferson. Anyway, uh, what we get here is seven hours of 18th century Boston. And uh, I have to admit that I was, I mean, I wasn't there, of course, but I was um, overwhelmed by what seems like incredible authenticity especially the ships, the um, Boston Boston ports. Uh, you know, uh, there is a scene of, a uh, hideous scene of a tar and feathering. <laughs> Frontal nudity on television. Anyway, uh, Colonial America, according to uh, the reviewer here in the New Yorker, Jill Lepore, L-E-P-O-R-E. She says that this is the best colonial America she uh, has ever seen. You know, she says this one is for revolution junkies. Um, <laughs> she says her favorite is Henry Knox uh, riding by Abigail's house on his horse on his way to Dorchester Heights to blast the British out of Boston. Uh then there's the Battle of Bunker Hill, and um, yes, uh, we see Joseph Warren dead on an ox cart, so that's a bit of a disappointment, she says. She says, a very little of the war itself. Adams was not a soldier. What we do have is a very uh, stolid George Washington. I cannot believe he was as wooden as he is portrayed in this show. Uh but there's lots of bloodletting and amputation and, uh, uh, yes, very badly done. I remember as a little child, it was a scene in Gone with the Wind that uh, shattered my 10-year-old soul. 
Uh, and if you're squeamish about that sort of thing, I wouldn't, um, I, I wouldn't recommend this show. There's a couple scenes of inoculation. Abigail and the Adams children uh, decide to get inoculated against smallpox. And there's a lot of blood and pus. And uh, I found that the most terrifying scene. Uh, actually, I I don't know. Perhaps it was true. I just, you know, I thought it was amazing the way the little children were so brave trying to uh, do the right thing. Can't imagine children today coping with such a terrible scene. Uh, anyway... Adams uh, is horrified by the tar and feathering, and uh, he doesn't like the violence of the insurrection. And obviously, uh, you know, um, he doesn't like this democracy thing. I wonder what he would have done if he'd been around. Well, it, Jefferson was over in France during their revolution, and uh, he didn't seem he didn't seem to take it as seriously as uh, he should have. I mean, I remember uh, Jefferson being a little pompous about the French Revolution. Uh, it seems to me that once he saw the terror, he would have had a healthy fear of the mob. Anyway, this review says that the storytelling itself manages to. Uh, give us a sense of history. Uh, it points out that American independence was not inevitable. It was debated. It didn't happen overnight. And nobody, certainly nobody was sure how it was going to turn out. Um, John Adams had a very jaundiced view. Uh, he said that, or he thought that war was a mess and certainly never glorious, except in hindsight. Uh, actually, I don't know. The debates of the Second Continental Congress made me think that maybe it's time for us to have another uh, another uh, constitutional convention. What do you think would come out of that? Perhaps this is not the moment, actually. Uh, there were a lot of little things that bugged me about this show, uh, because of the necessity in this script, people have to be uh, far too, well, they have to say what they think, which, you know, people never do that. Uh, the 18th century was certainly not a time for straightforward or honest uh, speaking. Uh, anyway, uh, there's a long list of the historical characters uh the Quakers. Um, the biggest problem, I think, is that the writing has to make Adams more important and more virtuous. Um, except, of course, uh, for his wife. <laughs> they have to do this because he has such a prodigious self-regard and disdain for his contemporaries. Actually, he is usually played as quite a curmudgeon. I think of Anthony Hopkins portraying him in Amistad. You remember his uh, elderly Adams? Adams could not stay out of politics. And uh, uh, he did accomplish a hell of a lot. Uh, 
But as this in this uh, reviewer points out, he was also a heel. Uh, well, they're all, you know, or three and four dimensional characters. Uh, after he failed to win a second presidential term in 1800, he spent the rest of his life fussing and worrying about how he would be treated by posterity. Yes. Uh, he read a three-volume history of the rise, progress, and termination of the American Revolution. It was written by a friend of his wife's. <laughs> In 1807, he read this book written by Mercy Otis Warren. as a three-volume history, and uh, uh, it devoted a mere four pages to John Adams. Well, he fell into a rage. Abigail had written to the author saying that uh, she had had a great influence on John. <laughs> I'm afraid... I'm afraid she she was mistaken about that. Anyway, you remember her famous letter in which she warned him that all men would be tyrants if they could and that uh, he should give some time and thought to the ladies. But he never did that. He, he definitely uh, felt that they were the last tribe he had to deal with. Uh, anyway, he wrote to... Uh, Mercy Otis Warren, after she had published her three-volume history of the American Revolution. He wrote her ten letters. Some of the letters are more than 20 pages long. They are petty. They're full of rambling vituperation. Uh, she had attacked or assailed him on his temperament. Apparently he was a curmudgeon, a grouch, uh, a pain in the royal, you know what. Um, let's see. Uh, he wrote to her saying, quote, You say that Mr. Adams, his passions and prejudices, were sometimes too strong for his sagacity and judgment. Mm. <laughs> he went on to complain. She had neglected him. He says, you have carefully recorded the appointment of Mr. J to Madrid in page 141, volume 2. You have recorded this to have been on the 27th of September, 1779, yet have taken no notice of mine, which was on the 29th of the same month. <laughs> she would not even grant him alphabetic preeminence. Ah. Uh, Warren listed uh, Ben Franklin, Jay, and Adams as ambassadors, and uh, Adams complained that his name ought to have appeared first in that list, as it had in their commission. He writes, you will say, no doubt, this is sighing for rank, in quote, sighing for rank. He sneered, anticipating her objection. Very well, say so, Mrs. Warren. Make the most of it. <laughs> What a crabby old dude. Anyway, he did have a right to feel betrayed because, of course, uh, the author, Mercy Otis Warren, and his wife had been close friends. But this reading of the history was paranoid and hysterical, and his letters to her are the rantings of a bully. He says she's unladylike, and there are things he could say about her if he weren't such a gentleman. And she could not possibly be motivated by anything but bitterness 
at his having been unwilling to grant members of her family political preferment. Now, it is true that John Adams is by no means the hero of Warren's history, but neither is anyone else. It's an epic history of an age, not a profile of its leading figures. Uh, even though Warren may have resented Adams, she, along with other Americans, who had only recently seen him voted out of office, also felt quite certain that he suffered from the love of power and from, quote, pride of talents. Okay. Anyway, the review in The New Yorker goes on at great length to point out uh, the faults, the uh, crabby bits and pieces of John Adams' character. Uh, it is true uh, that he was full of ambition and vainglory and so forth, but it is also true that his writings established the state and federal constitutions and gave the United States all the liberty, republicanism, and independence they enjoy. That his name was always placed at the head of every public commission, yes. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, the point is that um, she tells him that if she had given him the place he thought he deserved, uh, no one would believe such silliness. <laughs> okay, and this review ends with a snide laugh. It says, just give it time, Mrs. Warren, give it time. The reviewer's point, of course, is that David McCullough has put John Adams at the top of the list and said that he was the number one hero of the American Revolution. Okay. Uh, anyway, uh, this show, actually, I guess it's a good start, say, for high school students to begin studying the period of the uh, Revolution, colonial America, uh, uh, ben Franklin is portrayed as a rascal. I thought he was done very well. Uh, General Washington, as I said, is done as a bit of a stick figure. Maybe we will <laughs> see him uh, treated better in later episodes. Uh, they make little jokes uh, about his height, yes. Um, I asked a friend the other day what he thought of... Uh, Barack Obama, and he said, well, he's very tall, so is his wife, so was George Washington, yes. Anyway, the fellow playing John Adams, Paul Giamatti, uh, has 57 different wigs, not bad, not bad. Uh, this series gives John Adams credit for everything. Uh, it what is it? It describes George Washington as a sap skull and Thomas Jefferson as distracted and finally deluded. And Thomas Paine, well, he gets nothing but a shrug. Uh, David McCullough uh, won a Pulitzer Prize for his biography of John Adams. And I suppose, uh, according to this reviewer, this is history with a grudge. Uh, I think I like best the scene when he lies awake at night saying that he had to admit to himself that he was ambitious, that his father was uh, uh, a, uh, uh, what is it, uh, a cobbler, 
made shoes, yes, that his mother could not read. But still, the king of England had chosen him as a representative. Uh, ambition, insatiable ambition, primate grandiosity. Here is what he wrote. Uh, John Adams wrote, I have a dread of contempt, a quick sense of neglect, a strong desire of distinction. Obviously, yes. He's the Ebenezer, Ebenezer Scrooge of the American Revolution. Slouchy, grouchy, and crusty, but mushy on the inside. Uh, I think that we need to look at the whole story of John and Abigail Adams, particularly at their children. One of his sons wound up tragically. Uh, and Abigail, of course, is a story unto herself. I think maybe next time I can tell you more about Abigail because it is March. That's International Women's Month. Uh, Abigail never in her life attended any school. She wrote that female education in the best families went no further than writing and arithmetic. In some few instances, there was music and dancing. Uh, there was no formal schooling outside the home. The colonists adhered to the English practice. Uh, I think Abigail's capacity to keep her family alive, to scrub her household down with vinegar, and... Uh, to keep everyone well and happy, uh, let's see, I think she deserves the sort of praise that uh, George Eliot gave to the women of earlier times. They were the doctors, the uh, actually the caretakers.